Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, or as we call it, Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number 12. And the purpose of this show today is to kind of do like a review for your first midterm exam. What I'll be doing is going over the first five chapters briefly, probably spending somewhere about seven, eight, nine, ten minutes on each chapter, some a little bit more, some a little bit less. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention to you is that at this point in time, your exam will be coming up after this show fairly quickly. You're going to want to go to your course Blackboard website. You're going to want to check your exam schedule, which is there's a button on the left-hand side, a blue button. Uh, I don't believe I'm going to be changing the color of that button at any uh, time in the near uh, distant future, if you will. But what you want to do is you want to check there and look for the exam date and the exam time. What you also want to do is realize that we'll always try to have uh, both a morning session for people that are on campus during the day and also an afternoon session for people that will be coming in uh, that are working during the day and watching this class, for example, on TV or over the Internet or maybe have purchased, uh, as we will in the future in the springtime, uh, the DVD set for the class. So what I really want to emphasize is that you should be really looking at those dates, making sure that you figure out how, and when we do the exam, we start right on time. As I've mentioned many times before, one of the things you want to keep in mind is that we're reserving fairly large rooms. Uh, what that means is those rooms are usually in demand by other instructors. So what I want to do is get everybody in there, have you be able to start the exam on time, be able to leave, and then the next instructor can come in. Very, very important that we do that. The other thing is, is in some cases I may have to leave at the end of that testing session to go teach another class or go to some kind of a meeting whether, uh, you know, on that particular day. So you want to plan for that. And remember that we always will have on the campus, and I think most campuses are like this now, parking issues. So you may very well want to plan on leaving home a lot earlier than normal in order to find a parking spot so that you're here on time, or if you're taking the light rail or a bus or however you're basically getting here. The other thing I want to emphasize, too, is that you should have uh, worked on and hopefully by this time even completed the first midterm exam study guide. And remember what you're wanting to do is uh, the way I like to think about it is sit down, try to take that uh, exam, if you will, without peeking at any answers in the beginning. Uh, when you get done, then go back and look up the answers in the book. Write down on that study guide where you found them. In other words, the exact page. Maybe you found it in several different locations, or maybe even you found it in the book and also on the Internet. So put all your references down there. I think by that physical activity of you doing something and writing something down helps you remember. It's kind of the way I like to look at it is like if I explain to you how to, or you know, I, if I gave you directions on how to get from the college to my house, you'd be kind of thinking and trying to put together what you think it may be like. But if you actually got in your car or on your motorcycle and drove back and forth three or four times, guess what? You would probably really remember how to get there. So it's the idea that physical doing something with your hands that helps reinforce the material that you're going to be reading. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to be moving back and forth between me talking about the topic area and also at the same time uh, we may have some questions from the students in the classroom so I may have to stop or be uh, if necessary. But I'll be moving back and forth between uh, 
uh, talking to you and also the document camera here and po pulling up some stuff that uh, was, were in the book. I will in some cases, there might be some cases where I've highlighted something in yellow to show you or maybe reading a little bit of a passage and then come back and explaining something. And so that's basically how we're going to do the review. So anyway, uh, one more thing I want to mention to you is when you do come in for the exam, remember that you're going to need to bring a, a Scantron 882. You're going to bring a number two pencil. And also the third thing is if you'd like to bring a calculator, more than welcome to bring a calculator, but you can't bring any textbooks or any notes or any study guides. Just your brain, a pencil, Scantron 882, and a calculator is all you can bring to the exam. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and talk first about what's in Chapter 1, and I'm going to move over here to my old friendly uh, document camera. And what this Chapter 1 really started out with is try to give you some kind of a historical perspective on what, how we use finance, how we got around to finance, how we had things such as loans, uh, different types of lending institutions, and money was created. Now, what I want to do is just, in the beginning, I just want to tell you a couple things now, is the fact that what the book is really trying to emphasize, and I think everyone is, is the concept of that at one time, probably back maybe in the caveman days or something, when you wanted to uh, get something that somebody else produced or sold, what you had to do is maybe exchange something that you had for their particular service. So, for example, if I wanted to get some food from the butcher and I happened to be a carpenter, maybe I would agree with the carpenter that I would go down and fix their wall or fix their shelf or something like that, and that had some kind of a value, and maybe that value was equal to maybe three chickens or something like that. But the concept is we had a bartering system before we had any kind of money at all. And the, the problem with the bartering system is that I, always, I was really more or less limited, if you will, with the person that I was dealing with. In other words, I may have to go to one butcher, say, listen, I'm a carpenter. I'll fix, your, I'll fix your wall for you if you give me some food. And they would say, well, I'm not interested. Maybe I had to go down and find another butcher until I finally found somebody that I could exchange that value with. So it became evident after a period of time that one of the things that we need to do is to have some kind of independent, if you will, thing that we could exchange, something that had some kind of a value. And over the years, there were all different kinds of things that had value. There was gold, silver, you know, seashells, rocks, stones, whatever they happened to be. And somebody put some kind of value on them. And so, therefore, I could go then back to the butcher and say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will give you, uh, I'd like to have three chickens, and I'm going to give you three seashells. And that had some value. And then he could turn around and then go down and use those seashells to help pay for uh you know, for something he was having made at the tailor shop, if you will. Silly example, but hopefully that makes sense, that we need to have some centralized medium of exchange. We also have to have things like sets of rules that determine what the value of those things that we're using for exchange are worth so that we don't have things such as counterfeiting. Uh, we don't have people kind of making things up. That, In other words, they have some kind of a value to them. So as the years went by, you know, there were different kinds of money, different kinds of stones, gems, things like that we used to, uh, as, a, as a central point of exchange. What I wanted to point out is, and I thought was very interesting in the book, is that the banking system actually had some of its beginnings in England. As we would talk about it, they talked about the birth of the English banking system and I thought that was sort of interesting because it really sort of showed you a little bit of the growth of how we basically got where we are today. 
And the concept there was is that people would have gold. And what they would do is it maybe was sitting at home. They were afraid that maybe somebody was going to take it or steal it. They didn't have a safe place to lock it up. So what they would do is they'd go down to a goldsmith. They'd deposit the gold with the goldsmith. At that point in time, what would happen is the goldsmith would give them a piece of paper or a note, and that note would say, you know, you deposited so many ounces of gold with me. And it was kind of like a, a redemption ticket, if you will, kind of like a hat check ticket or uh, however you basically want to look at it. What the person that had that, that note would do is when they wanted their gold back, they would go down and show that to the goldsmith. The goldsmith would look at it, verify that that's who they were, and then turn around and hand them the gold back. Then that person may go down, I don't know, say to their local um, you know, store, grocery store, whatever it happened to be at that time, and maybe the grocer would say something like, okay, I'm going to sell you, you know, your food for this week is going to cost you so much gold, and you would give them the gold. That would be the medium of exchange. But after a while, people started to realize and said, you know, wait a minute, this is getting kind of old. Every time that I need to pay for something, I've got to go right back down to that goldsmith. He or she is maybe not there all the time. Maybe they're not, uh, it's not, uh, maybe I have to go out of my way to get there. And why don't I do this instead of me turning around and having to go down and get the gold? Why don't I just give somebody this note that I have? I'll endorse this note over to them and say to them, listen, you know, you now hereby can use this note to go down and claim that gold. And when you do that, now we start having something that's like a monetary system. And we can, instead of us having to go back every time to that goldsmith or that bank to get it, we just can take this note and pass it off to other people. The value of the note is backed, on, backed up by the amount of the, the value of the gold that it represents. So that was the initial banking system, if you will. Then it went on from there, and I thought what was interesting is to say, you know what? <clears throat> a lot of times people left gold there, and they didn't necessarily always come back and claim it. And so what the goldsmith would do is turn around and lend out some gold or lend out some value of some sort. And what would happen is then they would charge some kind of a fee, and that was the beginnings of having like a loan with interest on it. And what would happen is is that, you know what? The, the banker would turn around in order to encourage more people to deposit gold with him. He would pay the people that deposited with him something called a, some money, and that we would normally call that like an interest. So in other words, he was paying the people that deposited the money a certain amount of interest, if you will, in today's words, for, the, for that gold to attract them to the, bring their gold in and put it there, and also so that they would earn some money of, for just sitting there. And then they would turn around and lend out that gold to somebody else at a higher rate. And that's how they made profits. And that was how, they, uh, how the banking system started to, to develop. And as the book showed, there was different kinds of bank notes that we had, different ways of representing that. And, uh, you know, there were times when each bank would have a different type of note or a different type of way of representing the gold they had. So it becomes evident after a while that you need to have some kind of a standardized method of representing the uh, value of, um, of the uh, property. They then went on and talked about, and I think in here they also showed you, which I thought was also interesting, some examples of different types of money. Uh, if you go to a lot of different museums, you will see that there's, uh, you know, that there's different money. That, for example, in the South, during the uh, Civil War, the Southern states had their own monetary or money system. Uh, it was called Confederacy or Confederate money. The North had their money. 
I mean, so there was a lot of different monetary systems that were floating around that were representing, you know, that people used as a medium of exchange. So anyway, they went back from there and they started talking about our first bank in the United States. And they talked about the Bank of the United States, which was started under somebody called Alexander Hamilton, who was one of our founding fathers in the United States. Talked about the fact that the bank was put into uh, into existence, operated for a period of time, and then kind of was had a charter. And a charter basically means almost like an authorization to operate for a period of time. And what happened is that charter kind of ran out, and then between then and the Civil War, what would happen is is that there was you know periods of time of economic instability, if you will, and uh, that basically finally led to something called, at that time, something called the National Banking Act of 1863. And so anyway, we went on from there, and they talked about in the book during that period of time about how the war cost a lot of money. The the United States government, uh, at least the North, had to borrow a lot of money in order to pay things like soldiers' salaries, pay for munitions, pay for weapons, do all those kinds of things. So anyway, they went on and on and talking about just how the evolution of this banking system. And finally, what they did is they came down and they said, you know what? In 1913, in order to help stabilize the economy, we created something called the Federal Reserve System. And the purpose of the Federal Reserve System was, first of all, as it shows here in the book, and I think I showed you on the Internet, it was in different colors. And remember, I have all of these links to these websites in the uh, website links in, in the, uh, on Blackboard underneath the chapters, is that the Federal Reserve has different uh, 12 independent, if you will, or 12 banks that belong to the Federal Reserve, to the central bank. And these banks represent different parts of the United States. So we have the San Francisco Bank that represents the western part of the United States. And then we have banks that are on the eastern side. I think during the lecture I mentioned to you the fact that you'll notice that the western areas, geographical areas, are larger than the eastern part. And the reason why is because I believe is that there's a higher concentration of population on the east coast than there is on the west coast. So therefore, your banking districts are going to be smaller on the east coast and larger on the west coast. But anyway, there was a lot of discussion about the Federal Reserve System, because that's the, the system that we use now today that's called the Central Banking System for the United States. They administer something called monetary policy. As we talked about during the lecture, there's two different types of uh, financial policy. There's a monetary policy and a fiscal policy. Uh, the monetary policy is controlled by the Federal Reserve, and they have basically three ways that they control that policy. One is that they can raise or lower the rate or what they call the discount rate that they charge the member banks to borrow money from the central bank. In other words, when a bank needs money to maybe uh, meet its demands from maybe uh, you know businesses that are taking their money out to buy inventory or something like that, they can go to the central bank and borrow money. So that's one way. So if they raise the interest rates, that they charge member banks. The member banks have to raise the interest rates to uh, the uh, to their customers, and therefore, what ends up happening is is that we all end up paying a higher interest rate. Uh, the next thing was is that they can change the amount of reserve requirements. And as we talked about there, is that uh, is that whenever a bank, a bank in a town, 
receives a certain amount of money in deposits, say, if, for example, I mentioned $1,000, what ends up happening is that they always have to have a certain amount of money on reserve in case, for example, there's some kind of a calamity, somebody doesn't make their payments on time, some kind of a reserve. Think of it like, in your case, like some kind of a savings for a rainy day. Well, if they raise the reserve requirements, that's less money that the bank has to lend out. If they lower the reserve requirements, that's more money that they have to lend out. So we talked about that. And then the last way that they can do it is by buying and selling debt that the United States has. And we said, for example, if the Federal Reserve wants to stimulate the economy, they do that by putting more money in our pockets. What they do is they buy the debt from us in the form of bills, T-bills that we may have, treasury bills, and what they do is they give us the money, or they give the, they give the people that own those the money, and therefore they have more money now that they can utilize to turn around and, and buy things. On the other hand, if they want to tighten the money, uh, if they want to tighten or remove some money out of the system, what they do is they take and they ask, they, they sell more bonds which means now they're competing with the other kinds of investments and they're drying up the amount of reserve of funds that are available for real estate. The bottom line here is what you need to get out of, I feel out of this chapter from a practical standpoint is the understanding that the Federal Reserve is an extremely important uh, part of our economy. It has a dramatic and a direct effect on what's happening in the real estate industry mainly because most homeowners cannot pay for the property in cash. They're having to borrow the money. The higher the interest rates, the less people can afford to make, the higher the people, normal people's monthly payments are, and therefore, the less they're able to afford. Because remember, all of us have a certain amount of income coming in. If all of a sudden we find out our house payments are not going to be $1,000 a month, but they're going to be 1500 a month, that means something else has to go. Food, clothing, car hobbies or something. So consequently, what ends up happening, those things still need to be taken care of. So what will happen is those buyers now can't afford those higher monthly payments, so they won't buy. They'll continue to rent, for example. So I think that that is probably one of the most important things that you need to get out of Chapter 1 from a practical standpoint. You really want to keep your ear to the ground when it comes to the Federal Reserve System. The next thing that I wanted to mention to you was what was in Chapter 2. And in Chapter 2, we talked about something called the economic cycles. And again, this from a practical standpoint is important for you as a real estate professional to keep abreast to what's going on in the economy. They went through several different cycles, and I spent quite a bit of time in trying to characterize what was happening in these cycles. Keep in mind that we have sort of like we have a rise in housing values, then we have a decline, then we have another rise, and we have a decline and another rise. And notice that these graphs are all hopefully continuing to go up. They're not going down. So you, even so they go down, the trend is going up. Whereas if you drew a line through here like this, you would see that the, that the values are going up. They're not going down. Now, what you want to do is take and start to learn what kind of characteristics happen at these different points. This is at the peak, the top of the market. What happens at the top of the market is that people, I would almost say, become euphoric, if you will, about real estate. They're standing in lines. They basically believe that this is the best deal in the world, that if they don't buy a house today, they're going to not have an opportunity tomorrow. 
If we were selling new homes like we were a couple years ago, you'd see people camping out on Friday and Saturday night with just hoping to have the opportunity to put their name in a hat to be drawn to possibly even make an offer on, on a home. Uh, there were houses that would have multiple offers. Uh, you know, if your house was just, you know, just if you put a sign out for sale, in some cases it was possible that maybe by the end of the day you may have had two or three offers. During that period of time, most people that are owners of real estate think that they're geniuses. They don't realize that, that it's not their genius. It's just the market that's happening that way. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to get into the real estate industry. They're trying to either be appraisers, lenders, uh, real estate salespeople. During that period of time, probably the Department of Real Estate, is, uh, as it was, was had t uh, a huge amount of applications for real estate licenses. We had huge demands for real estate classes. So what I'm trying to explain here is you want to get a feel and look for those things that are happening, those indicators, what's going on in the economy because so that you're not doing something like buying now and then finding out like a lot of people are today that the value of their property just went down okay the other thing that you're going to see too is that usually at that peak period of time is usually when the interest rates are probably pretty close to the lowest or uh... and maybe even there's some discussion in the newspaper about the idea of you know whether journalists are writing articles like saying hey the bubble has got to bust something's got to happen People are going to lose their values, but things don't seem to change right away. Not everybody becomes a believer. And then all of a sudden, the interest rates start going up. People can't afford to buy, and then the value of the property goes down because there's less buyers that can afford. So you want to be able to spot those points in the market. Now the market then starts to go into some form of a recession. During a recessionary period of time, again, the opposite of what was happening here starts to happen here. You start to see that there's more homes for sale on the market. Uh, you'll drive down the street and see more for sale signs. You'll see more ads in the newspaper. You're going to probably um, start to see some people in the real estate business start to leave the business. Uh, you may even see some real estate offices start to close if they have a branch office. You'll see that the interest rates are going up. And uh, you'll probably see a trend in the Federal Reserve continuing to raise interest rates, trying to fight inflation. Uh, yeah, as you get closer down near the bottom here, you may even see, as we're starting to see now, where people maybe can't sell the house and make enough money to even pay the loan off. So we start to see something called short sales, which are where you and your real estate agent negotiate with the lender and say, you know, no matter what, I can't seem to get you know the, uh, enough money for the house in order to pay the loan off. So you see a lot of that kind of activity going during that period of time. Uh, the next thing that you're going to notice is that you'll finally hit the trough, the bottom. This becomes a very, very difficult point in time to measure. Um, usually at this point in time, uh, the houses have been sitting on the market for a long period of time. They've gone down dramatically in value. Uh, you've probably seen notices in the paper about foreclosure. You maybe even seen where people are running into town and talking how to make a gazillion dollars in real estate by buying foreclosed property. So there's a lot of that going on. And what will happen is what you really would try to do is to buy somewhere right in here in the trough, somewhere right down before it starts to go up again. Because if you buy here, what's going to end up happening, the market will start turning around and going back up again. And you will look like you're a genius. <laughs> you just happened to luck out is what happened. And those of us that have been in the business for years, we wish we had the crystal ball to be able to figure out when this happens. But the
the market starts to go up, you'll find that uh, you'll you know your house maybe you bought for three hundred thousand it's now worth three twenty five three fifty. There's articles in the paper where uh, and, and TV little TV shows or little news stories about you know Mr. and Mrs. Jones bought a house and it was such a great idea and it's gone up fifty or sixty thousand dollars in value in a year and aren't they really smart? And uh, you'll start reading about where people are flipping houses. In other words, hey, if I buy it and do any kind of work to it and fix it up and sell it, I can sell it for more money. So you start to see those kinds of activities. The important point that you want to get across here is you want to be thinking about the fact that how do you spot those points in the economy? It's not easy. There's a lot of literature. And I would venture to say that you also need to add to that. Don't just sit in the chair and read the paper and read what's on the Internet. Get up, go out, start to observe what's going on. You know, an economy will start to turn around and things will get better and people start to make decisions, but they don't tell anybody. You know, you may go out and the, and the housing market's been slow. And all of a sudden you go out on a Sunday and you see, hey, you know, there's a lot of people out looking for houses now. It's, it's not that anybody made, there was a command decision. It was just all of a sudden people started to think, hey, you know, I think I'm going to maybe keep my job for a while. I feel a little bit more co confident in the economy. The interest rates are a little bit lower. And I think I'm ready to buy again. How do you find that out? Don't wait for it to show up in the newspaper. Get up and start going out and taking a look. In fact, look all the time. And you can help you reinforce what you think is maybe happening. So anyway, we talked about the cycles. We also went on to talk about the secondary market. And, I'll, um, you know, there was, um, we talked about in here a couple things that they talked about, and I'll just quickly browse. They talked about the supply and demand curve. And, again, this may take a little bit of study on your part, but basically what we're doing is this is the, this is the price, this is the quantity, all we're saying here is as the price goes up, that a supplier is willing to make or provide more products, okay? So in other words, if I'm building something like a car and the price of cars are going up and I can make more money, I'm going to build more cars. Conversely, consumers, we look at it and say, you know what, as the price goes down, I'm going to buy more. So, for example, if you saw where, say, General Motors decided or some of the car companies, the larger car companies, what they're doing right now is they're discounting the prices of their cars, trying to have you come in and buy. What they're trying to do is stimulate that demand. They figure if I reduce the price, more consumers are going to buy more cars. Okay, so as the price goes down, we will buy more. The concept that you're looking at here on this curve is that there's a point right here which is called the equilibrium point. And the concept behind that is that suppliers supply just about enough and, and consumers buy just about the amount of right so that we don't have an oversupply of products on the market sitting on the shelves and, we, you know, and, 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 the, and the people that produce the products losing money. And we don't have consumers demanding products where they're forcing and competing and bidding the price of the product up. That's the equilibrium point, the ideal place. So that's what we're always looking for. In the book, they talked about a lot of different things that would affect the value of real estate uh, and the prices going up. Some of the things they talked about were more, the availability of interest rates and mortgage funds. They talked about things such as population. So the more people we have moving, say, to the Sacramento area, 
the more demand there would be on housing and housing both for rental housing, single family homes, townhomes, condominiums, whatever. So as people move in, there's more of a demand. Social attitudes also is another thing that affects value and the kind of property that people buy, all right? And um, I think, uh, let me see if there's anything else in here. Yes, any kind of political activity, okay? So right, you know, if we're talking about where the government is, uh, it wants to, for whatever reason, provide an incentive to certain parts of the housing area to expand, such as if they want to have low-income housing, more of it available, that would be a political decision. And they may pass some kind of a tax law that would provide an incentive to developers to build new housing. So that would be kind of a, a political activity that would stimulate that. And then also any kind of regulation that may come along, either pro or con. All right? And... Um, they also talked, and I'll talk about it again in a second here, they talked about the importance of the secondary mortgage market. They talked about Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, and Freddie Mac. Basically what they did is they said, you know, the lender, when, you know, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, those people make a loan, what they end up doing is they put all those loans together in order for them to provide liquidity or place to, you know, for somebody to buy them so they can get more money. What they do is they sell them on the secondary market. And that secondary market is composed of those three agencies, Jenny Mae, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. Very important to know what, that, what those agencies are doing, how well they're doing their job. And uh, remember that they're not only buying, as we call the mortgages, but they're also providing standards for us to live by so that we are not having one bank has one way of doing an appraisal and another bank has another way and another bank has a different way of qualifying a, um, a, a borrower that they all use the same standards, okay? That's what becomes really, really important, and as you see as the market goes along. The uh, next chapter, as I'm just looking through here, talked about the uh, sources for the primary market. Sources for the primary market. Remember, the primary market is the place where you go to get a loan. This is when you walk, we're talking about when you walk into the banker and say, excuse me, I'm interested in borrowing money to buy a house. Or you sit down with a mortgage banker or a mortgage broker and you want to borrow money. So basically, what they did in this particular chapter is they started out by, first of all, talking about something called traditional direct lenders. Traditional, traditionally who we have. They talked quite a bit about something called savings and loans. And savings and loans, primarily for years and years and years, their job was to lend money on real estate. Uh, what they did is, as they discussed in the book, what happened was is that normal banks, commercial banks, banks that have uh, checking accounts or they have they're getting their funds from businesses that are coming in and deposit depositing their end of days receipts is that that money comes into the bank you know like the business comes in they deposit their you know what they got for the day in sales and the next day they're writing checks for the guy that delivers uh you know, the, the meat for the restaurant or the hardware at the hardware store or whatever. So the money doesn't stay in the bank. It's constantly revolving or moving around. 
What savings and loans did is that because people would come in and deposit their money in like a, a, um, in a savings account, the money would stay there longer. And what would happen is, is that the banks would provide or the savings and loans would provide a higher rate of interest and as an incentive for people to keep their money for a longer period of time. So anyway, what happened is they went on for years and years and years like that, and that they were handling the majority of the home residential market. And we had a, a large segmentation due to law that, for example, stockbrokers sold stocks and bonds, banks did banking, savings and loans did housing, insurance people did insurance, and they, none, none of them intermixed. There was regulations that prohibited them from going one over the other. What happened, though, in the 70s and the 80s is that the savings and loans started to see money go away. Uh, people were withdrawing it because they were getting higher rates of interest. What they said is they said, you know what, we need to have some other way to compete in the industry. What they did is they asked for deregulation. In other words, unregulate the industry as we understand it today, which they did. In fact, during that period of time, there's a lot of deregulation in a lot of industries, not only banking and insurance, but we saw that in the airline industry. We saw it in a lot of different industries. The idea was free these organizations, companies up so that they can compete on an equal playing field. Well, they got what they, they their wish was granted, and what happened is then they found themselves in businesses that they had not necessarily ever been involved with before. They didn't have the experience. There wasn't the standard set, uh, you know, for them to follow as well. And what ended up happening is that the savings and loans ended up with a lot of property that they had lent money out on, and the loans were absolutely no good. And so what ended up happening is, as usual, as usual, the federal government had to stop, had to step up, and came up with several different organizations and departments to try to rectify whatever this problem was. And they set up things such as the Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery and Enforcement Act. Uh, and it says right here that that organization would do more than just address the savings and loans problems. It would uh, affect every institution. A federally re regulated transaction is any transaction in which the federal government is involved. And what they did is they passed a lot of different rules, laws, and also set up offices, such as they had to set up tighter controls over the lending policies. They had to establish an office. Uh, or an organization that would take all of those real properties or real estate that they had that they ended up with because they didn't, you know, lend the money out correctly and follow the rules correctly or even have any rules, and they had to take and, and dispose of that property. There was a big bailout, and as a result of that, there was a lot of legislation that was put in place. That's what this first part of this chapter is about, about a lot of the legislation. And as I mentioned before, we end up getting a lot of things passed by Congress, because of the fact that uh, because of the fact that uh, we have some kind of a crisis that comes up, when that crisis comes up, then all of a sudden Congress calls all of these different organizations and companies in, sits them all down at the table, has hearings, and says, "What happened? How did you end up with this big problem?" And then as a result of that, they take and they they author legislation. And they pass it through the Senate and the House, goes to the president, signed into law, establishing different departments, organizations, and, and laws to enforce stricter compliance. So we see that happen all the time. But what drives that? Crisis. 
I mean, I guess if you go to people and say, listen, if you keep doing that, you're going to be bankrupt. They don't listen until all of a sudden the action actually happens. So that's that ended up causing a lot of legislation. Uh, they also talked in this chapter, too, about commercial banks. You know, commercial banks typically are banks that do things such as, uh, you know, I think back to the person standing in the teller line with a little bag of money, sometimes in a brown paper bag, depositing a lot of, uh, you know, coins, a lot of cash, uh, maybe getting money to take back, you know, rolls of nickels, dimes, and quarters to take back for the, for the cash register. Uh, they maybe are coming in at night and depositing it in the overnight uh, box that's on the outside of the uh, of the bank where they're putting their deposits at night. So anyway, commercial banks are doing that. They usually are also making loans on things like to buy inventory. Uh, commercial banks, for example, will provide financing for auto dealerships. You know, if you go out here and you look at these auto dealerships and you say, well, where did they get the money to hold all those cars, they're getting getting it from banks. Commercial banks are providing the financing for them to hold those cars while they're waiting for them to sell. Uh, they're maybe uh, extending things like lines of credit to buy to meet payroll needs, to uh, to do things such as buy inventory, things like that. That's what commercial banks are typically doing. That kind of activity. They may be working with, uh, maybe helping to process payroll for people or companies. That's what commercial banks are doing. Credit unions, on the other hand, I think we mentioned it there, is credit unions. And I know, I think during that lecture, I think I spent a lot, quite a bit of time going out and showing you a couple credit unions. I think it was Mather was one of them, and it's now called Heritage. Uh, credit unions are basically formed, as I think I mentioned during that lecture, for people that have some form of interest together. So, for example, I joined years ago, back in 1972, I think, Mather Federal Credit Union, because at the time I was in the military, the people that belonged to it were in the military or they worked for civil service. We all had a common interest. Uh, I think I pointed out a couple other credit unions. There's a thing called Kaiser Permanente Credit Union. It's for employees that work at, you know, for Kaiser hospitals. So, you may see credit unions that are firefighters, police departments, or whatever. And the concept is, is that they are putting together a group of, uh, they're putting together a, an institution called a credit union with people that are going to be the depositors that have this common interest. And then what will happen is that those people can go there and usually borrow money for such things as buying a car, uh, maybe buying furniture, personal use, getting a share secure loan where they're borrowing against the amount of money they have in the bank, things like that. Credit unions have moved in the last number of years away from that small little entity to, to including more uh, credit unions. For example, I first, as I mentioned before, I first started to see it when they'd say you can only be a member if, if you are in the military or your civil service, or then they'd say one of your family members. Then they extended it beyond that and said, oh, by the way, your, your sister can join your brother, your mother, your father, and then maybe your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor. Do you happen to know somebody that, you know, so what they were trying to do was expand their membership. And what happened is, is a lot of those organizations, as time goes by, they run out of people that fit those roles and they run out of members. So what starts to happen is they start to and have acquired they start buying each other. For example, Mather Credit Union was bought by a company called Heritage Credit Union, and they were merged together. So we've seen a lot of that merging going on. 
The other thing that they've been doing over the years is trying to make some more loans besides just the small loans. Now, they now do, depending upon the credit union, they do regular loans, uh, equity lines of credit, um, second loans. So they do a lot of different lending that they used to do before. And the reason why is they're trying to compete, if you will, head-on-head with all the other lending institutions that are out there, the Washington Mutual, the the uh, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and the credit unions are all sort of competing for the same customers or clientele. So that's that's what's going on right now. Uh, we also talked about some lenders that are or what we call indirect lenders. We mentioned the fact that one of these people are, the reason why we call them indirect is that in most cases you are not going to see an office that says, uh, you know, Pat Hogarty's Pension Company Loan Real Estate Loan Company. You won't see something like that. Pension companies are large, large, uh, and continue to get larger by the day. They're institutions that get their money from us when we work for our company, and the company takes a certain amount of money out of our paycheck and deposits it for us and manages it for us with the idea in mind that they're going to continue to collect this money, invest it for us, that when we turn a certain age, like 55, 60, 65 years of all age, and we get ready to retire, that we'll be able to receive an income from it. Now, what's happen- what happens is that these pension funds typically la- invest in large projects or they buy large blocks of real estate loans. So except for some smaller uh, or except for some... Um, I think, for example, maybe CalPERS, some of those organizations may have where you can borrow money to buy a house, but usually we're talking about them lending money on things like shopping centers, office buildings, places like that. Again, what you'll find is that there will be a mortgage broker or a mortgage correspondent that will be dealing as an intermediary between these large uh, pieces of property that are looking for financing and those pension plans. And the money, by the way, is very stable. When you put it in there, it doesn't, it doesn't go back out again. It's very highly predictable. It's not like a commercial bank where it's coming in and out all the time. <clears throat> we also talked about insurance companies. They're in the same situation uh, where they're collecting money from you with the idea in mind that maybe they'll pay you something if you become disabled or you die, uh, something along that line. They collect their money. People don't you know, put, pay the insurance premium every month and then turn around and take it right back out again. They don't do that. It stays with them. So both pension and insurance companies are looking for extremely long, solid, long-term investments. Not short-term, but really long, solid, long-term investments. Why? Because they have that money that's going to be there for a long period of time. Okay, so then... Um, we did differentiate down below on uh, one of the pages here called about, we talked about uh, mortgage brokers. You're going to hear this term back and forth. You're going to hear mortgage broker, and you're also going to hear the term mortgage banker. Uh, I'll probably put this up here. This maybe will throw up both terms, or mortgage broker, mortgage banker. The difference between them is this, the way that I see it. A mortgage broker is an independent third party who earns their living by finding people that want to borrow money and finding people that want to invest in, in, in mortgages and putting the two together. And when they do that, they turn around and they collect a commission. 
They may collect a commission for originating the loan. They may collect the commission for also servicing the loan. Okay, and uh, mortgage brokers could be somebody trying to broker a very, very large real estate loan for a shopping center, an office building, and they could also be somebody that maybe has investors that are buying loans that were taken back by an individual. $50,000 loan when the person got ready to sell the house, the new person couldn't find uh, the financing. <clears throat> so the owner took back a loan, and what happens is maybe the owner got tired of you know just sitting around waiting for their money to come in, just the monthly payments and they decide to sell it to an investor. The person that uh, originated or negotiated, negotiated that deal was a mortgage broker. A mortgage banker, on the other hand, is one that goes and gets a line of credit from the bank, puts together loans that they've, you know, that they've originated, and then they turn around and sell that on the secondary market, and then they turn around and relend the money out again. You may find out that mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers may actually provide both services. Okay, and um, we also talked about real estate investment trusts. And uh, remember, real estate investment trusts, the idea behind these is that instead of, and they work like a mutual fund does, in the sense that instead of you, you may want to invest in a shopping center or an office building, and, but you don't have $10 million to do that, but you want to invest in that kind of quality property. What happens is is that the real estate investment trusts are organized so that people can buy small portions or shares. In other words, I can put, say, for example, $5,000 in or $10,000 in and buy a share or a series of shares in this real estate investment trust, and then that real estate investment trust will go out and acquire the property. They'll manage the property. They'll fix it up if necessary or, or, or contract to fix it up. They'll sell it. They'll operate it. They'll do all that. They also have professional management. We talked about different types of real estate investment trusts. On one end, there are, one, there are trusts that just buy and hold and fix up property, and that's all they do. On the other end, we have real estate investment trusts that buy mortgages, and, they, and they're looking to buy blocks of mortgages, invest in that kind of a vehicle. And then we have what we call hybrids that do a combination of both. So, again, we talked about that. And then we finally also talked about private individuals. What I mentioned during that period of time is I said, you know, private individuals are people that are usually taking back loans when they get ready to sell a house because it's very difficult to get loans during that period of time. We saw a lot of this in the late 70s and early 80s because the interest rates were extremely high. If you wanted to sell property, and you, you normally would end up having to take and have the buyer at that time assume your existing financing, and then you as the seller take back what we call the second for a certain part of your equity. So private individuals can also help finance property, and there's a lot of pros and cons to that. We then moved on. Just quickly now, because I'm getting close to, believe it or not, I thought I'm uh, running out of time here. We did talk about the uh, secondary market and federal credit agencies. Now, the focus of this chapter was not the sense of the secondary market in the sense of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and Ginnie Mae, but it was talking about where in the world do these organizations get their money from. And what we talked about the fact is, is that in order for them to get their money, what they end up doing is they have to sell something typically called a bond. 
And that bond is bought by normally investors. What kind of investors are we talking about? Insurance companies, pension plans, well-heeled investors. Those people buy those bonds and remit that money to Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac. They also, when they borrow that money, they pledge those mortgages that they have, okay, as security for those bonds. And then what happens is that money comes in, and then that's the money that's used to get the market going and to buy and sell mortgages. And so we talked about those different types of mortgage securities that they use. And we talked about things such as pass-through uh, securities. We talked about mortgage-backed securities, and we talked about collateralized mortgage securities. So, again, I, I would really emphasize you go back and read about that. What's important about all of these third-party organizations in the area of real estate is that you know what they do, you understand their role, so that when you see in the newspaper or the magazine or on the news that they're doing something or there's some kind of a problem in that area or some kind of uh, that they're having a, some kind of legislation that's being passed, that you're aware that what's happening with that legislation may have a dramatic effect on the value of the properties in your local community. Or if Fannie Mae starts to have some financial problems, that can have an effect on your local community because they're the ones that are buying the mortgages. That's why we're wanting to learn how all of this kind of mortgage stuff operates. I also, during that period of time, talked and spent quite a bit of time in both shows talking about and I think this was show, um, I think it was show seven and uh, show eight. We did a lot of time talking about the, the resources that are on the web to help consumers. I spent a lot of time going over the Freddie Mac, I think it was Freddie Mac website. That's an example of what the website looks like, but also I had a link in the, uh, under the websites. And we spent a lot of time showing you the different kinds of calculators they had and the, uh, you know, the different kinds of literature that they had to help consumers because one of their roles is to help consumers understand what's required to buy real estate. Okay, so we spent quite a bit of time showing that and the other organizations that are there. And the reason why I did that is because on their own, when you read about it, you go, who are these people? You know, it's kind of dry. I've got to remember a bunch of letters. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But if I go to the website and I show you some things that are at their website, hopefully then you'll go there and check that out and go, now, hey, you know, I've been there, I've done that, and I understand that this organization really does exist. It's not just something in the textbook. It really does exist, and they provide these kinds of services. The next thing that we want to do, because I'm getting close to the end now, is we're going to move on to the last chapter, if I can get that page turned correctly here. And we were talking now about something called federal regulation and consumer protection. Federal regulation and consumer protection. And the reason why this chapter becomes important, again, is to realize that we have these rules and we have these laws because, just like the other time, there was some kind of calamity, catastrophe, or, in this case, some kind of discrimination something that prevented people, all of us, from being able to buy homes. And so as a result of that, there were a lot of legislation, a lot of acts that were passed to protect all of us as consumers against discrimination based on race, creed, color, 
national origin, where we're from, or whatever. And so it becomes important that you read and understand these because you're having to deal with this stuff and you're having to disclose this stuff to people. And this chapter breaks into two areas. One is the federal regulation trying to prohibit things like discrimination. And the other one is where we have consumer protection. That's the second part of this chapter, consumer protection. So you see federal regulation and you see consumer protection. Federal regulation is to make sure that we are all treated the same when we get ready to buy a house. Consumer protection is where we are informed and told things that help us make a better decision on whether or not to buy or get loans. In other words, when we're buying a house. Things like disclosure rules and laws. So anyway, they basically went through a series of acts in here. Uh, They talked about the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the fact that even so it was passed and it provided that we all would have the same right to own the house. They found that, you know, that wasn't being followed. Uh, for those of us that were around in the 1960s era, we know that that was a, 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 a decade, if you will, of a lot of different types of legislation that forced a lot of changes within the industry. Uh, a couple of things that were going on that had stopped is things such as redlining. It used to actually be... Uh, where you could actually, uh, lenders would draw on a map in the back room a line around certain geographical areas within the community, and that line that was drawn around was usually red in color. And what would happen is they'd say, you know, we lend to all these areas on the outside, but not to them, because you know what? That area has a higher rate of foreclosure. The problem is, is when they did that, that was also discriminatory, because what happens is the people that live in that area, <coughs> in a lot of cases, are usually... Uh, people that maybe are just coming to the you know, the first generation coming to this country, the immigration, uh, you know, they're immigrating to the country. They don't have the money, the education, the jobs to be able to afford things. They have the people that are working two and three jobs to help support a family. And so by not lending in that area, we're, uh, because of, say, maybe there's a problem with payment, what we're doing is we're ending up discriminating in that area. So what they do is they start putting legislation in place and say, no, wait a minute, what we need to do is sit down with these people, explain how these programs work, make sure that there is housing in those areas, that it's affordable, and that there's all those other things that we would have in the rest of the community. So that's what a lot of this legislation did. Uh, there were several other things. There were a lot of acts like the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, the Community Reinvestment Act, which basically said, you know, those institutions have got to tell the government what they're doing in order to help those people in that community, and they need to report that back to us. Um, so there were lots and lots of re- legislation to do with that. The other thing that we deal with, with was with, cons- was with, if you will, consumer protection. And some of the consumer protection that we had were, th- were legislation that was passed such as the uh, Real Estate Settlement and Procedures Act, and uh, what we typically call RESPA statements. Uh, these are statements that lenders have to give to you to show you what your interest rates are going to be, where, what fees you're going to pay, what the costs are, wh- how much you're going to pay, and, and, for example, estimates in title insurance, um, loan fees, points, so on and so forth, so that you can make a more intelligent decision on whether or not you want to proceed with that particular loan. So we had that. Uh, There was also several different uh, things that were provided to consumers, such as there's a mandatory requirement of a HUD booklet 
that tells consumers how the settlement process works. There's a requirement to have what we call a good faith estimate. So when you go to get a loan, the lender has to give you this good faith estimate of what they believe the costs are going to be to get the loan. And also you have to have a uniform settlement statement prior to the close of the escrow. In other words, where is the money going to go? Where has it gone? So those are all laws and legislation that was passed to help us as consumers understand where our money is going. Very, very important that we do that. Um, There was other legislation such as Regulation Z, which um, I'll read basically what this says. It says that Regulation Z requires that the lender provide the consumer with a total of all finance charges and annual percentage rate of the loan. That's why when you you see a loan, if you're going home tonight and you see even a billboard on the side of the freeway and it's for some lender, diatech.com or the money tree or whoever it happens to be, you'll see two different rates quoted. One will be the interest rate, That means where they say, hey, for 30-year fixed-rate loan, conforming loan, the interest rate's going to be, you know, 5.5% or 6%. That's the interest rate you're going to pay. Then they'll have an annual percentage rate. That annual percentage rate is not the same as the percentage rate. What the annual percentage rate is is it includes all of the costs of getting the loan. And the way that that works is like this. You know, when I sit down with a lender... If I go to one bank, that bank is telling me, okay, I'm going to charge you $300 for an appraisal report, and I'm going to charge you two points for the loan, and these are your escrow fees. Then when you try to compare that to the next lender, it becomes difficult because maybe you're paying the same fees, but you're paying them in different categories. Maybe they're going to charge you more points, but they're going to charge you less for your appraisal. So what you really, it stands to reason after a while is that you have to have some independent indicator of some sort that you can turn around and look at the loan and say, is this loan better than that loan? And that indicator is called the annual percentage rate. And by this law, they have to disclose both the interest rate on the loan and the annual percentage rate. And later on in this semester... I will be taking some time, I think when we get down near the real estate finance math part, where I will show you how you go about calculating that annual percentage rate. Because people will ask you what it is, and you don't want to look like you don't know what you're talking about. You want to have an idea how you go ahead and calculate that. So I'm going to be going through and showing you how to do that. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching. We'll be looking forward to see you when you come in to take your exam. Remember to download and do the study guide, and we'll see you back here again for show number 13. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.